During the January 6th committee hearings, Democrats painted a devastating portrait of President Donald Trump and his supporters attempting to overthrow democracy. They heavily emphasized the degree to which Trump was inflexible and adamant in claiming that the election was stolen, and the degree to which he was willing to use extra-constitutional means to try to achieve that goal. They emphasized what they called Trump's dereliction of duty in his unwillingness to, in the 180 minutes during which the protesters were storming through the Capitol, do anything to stop them. And they've described January 6th as an existential threat to democracy. This leads to an interesting question. Across the country, why are Democrats funding campaigns of candidates who were Stop the Steal supporters, intimately involved with the protests at January 6th, and in fact may, in some cases, have stormed the Capitol? Generally speaking, if you think something is a threat to democracy, are you really going to fund it and support it? If you think something's a threat to democracy, do you really want to try to have that faction that is committed to this idea of a threat to democracy take over your opposition party? Are Democrats being dumb? Are they being insane? Or is there some other kind of political strategy going on here that we're not aware of? I'm Dr. Nolte, and this is Blind Politics. Welcome back inside our podcast studio here at Regent University in sunny Virginia Beach, Virginia. I'm Dr. A.J. Nolte, and this is Blind Politics. I'm an assistant professor of government at Regent University's Robertson School of Government. Once again, views expressed in this podcast do not represent those of either Regent University or the Robertson School. Please remember that you can rate and subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast provider. And we hope you'll check us out on American One. That's American One, where you can find top quality video podcasts from a center-right to conservative perspective. We are happy to be among their number and recommend that you check out their other great content on American One, which you can find on their website or through their app in the App Store. So the January 6th hearings are concluding. As I'm recording this, they will have been over for a while, probably, as you're hearing this. And it's become clear that Democrats have a very specific narrative that they're going with here. It's a narrative of a president who acted in sort of an erratic, narcissistic fashion to try to overthrow the government in the face of what he saw as a stolen election, and of an insurrection that was a threat to democracy. And there have been some disturbing footage and disturbing events revealed from that time period. Disturbing footage of the vice president having to be quickly escorted from the building. Footage of, or, or text of secret service members and, and calls that they were making to other members of the secret service where they're saying essentially, if I don't make it out of this, tell my family that I love them type things. And that was in the vice president's detail. Testimony about very erratic behavior on the part of the president, including claims that he wanted to let people through the security, even things like magnetometers, even if they had weapons because they were, quote, not here to hurt me. Testimony that said that the president wanted to go down to the Capitol with those who were, who were going there. And of course, testimony that he was watching TV while all this was happening, refusing to take action, 
and that in fact it was necessary for the vice president to take action to put an end to the riots in the Capitol. All of this testimony is very serious. It should be taken very seriously. The claims should be fully uh, investigated, examined, and aired out. And it would be good for even those who have executive privilege to testify, preferably in, in some fashion, you know, if not under oath, then in, in, uh, in some fashion very clearly about what happened. At a certain point, we're going to probably need to hear from Mike Pence about what happened, because very few people are in a position to know as much as he does. And I suspect that will not be a good day for President Trump. Okay. All of this is very sobering from a conservative perspective. And it should make Republicans very seriously examine the question of whether we want Donald Trump to be the nominee of the Republican Party in 2024. Do you want to relitigate all of this stuff for another two years if he's the nominee? Or would we maybe like to talk about something else? <laughs> right? Would we maybe like to have an election that's not focused on this? And then there's the fitness for office question. right? If he didn't do his job, faithfully execute the office of the president, that raises questions. Right? And I would love to see more specifics on some of those claims. So, you know, dereliction as a criminal matter is difficult to prove, if not impossible. Uh, I don't think there's any way you could criminally prosecute someone for, for not doing their job in that sense. The president's not bound by the Uniform Code of Military Justice. That being said, if someone was derelict in their duty as president, it does raise the possibility that maybe we should not elect them to that position again. And I'm not really sure that there's a whole lot of appetite for Trump to be the nominee again on the Republican side. Even people who like Trump, even people who supported his policies, I think there's a significant portion who, of folks who are maybe not talking about it, but yeah, maybe we could have the things that we liked about Trump without some of the things that we didn't like with somebody like a DeSantis. Or maybe we could win you know, convincingly with someone like a Yunkin and still get a lot of policy wins. So we'll see how all that shakes out. What I want to talk about today, though, is something a little bit different. Democrats have been laying this out, and they've essentially been trying to run on the idea that January 6th was an existential threat to democracy. Okay? That is a, a, a reasonable argument to make, given the evidence that they presented, the claims that they, they presented, and what they believe about what happened on, on January 6th, what they, what they seem to be arguing. Right? That narrative would make you believe that this was an event that was an existential threat to democracy, and that people who are not willing to accept the 2020 election are themselves potentially a threat to democracy, right? A threat to the integrity of future elections. Democrats have been raising the hue and cry about how these, you know, there's a nefarious plot by MAGA-aligned interests to nominate candidates who will ensure that Republicans win the election in 2024, whether they do or not. It's almost as though certain elements of the Democratic Party are preparing to pre-spin the election in case they lose in 2024 so that they can then claim the election is stolen. Let's also remember that 2020 is not the first time that anyone has ever claimed an election was stolen. It's just the first time that Republicans have on a massive scale claimed that a presidential election was stolen. 2000, 2004, 2018 Georgia governor. 2008 Minnesota Senate was, was another one where Republicans are like, there's some shenanigans here. That election was decided by like 800 votes though. So more often than not though, these claims come from Democrats. That tends to be their playbook. 
So they're pre-spinning in a sense. If these certain MAGA people are elected, they're going to try to suppress the vote in 2024 and you know, guarantee that, the, that Trump wins again, right? That's the argument they're making. Here's the problem. I don't believe that they believe what they're saying. I don't think that Democrats actually believe that January 6th and Donald Trump and MAGA and all of these people are a threat to democracy. I don't believe them. Because whatever they may say, that's not how they're acting, okay? Let's look at some evidence. Pennsylvania Republican primary. Democrats spent $800,000 running ads about how conservative Doug Mastriano was in a Republican primary. Mastriano himself spent $300,000. Josh Shapiro and his supporters spent more money to prop up Doug Mastriano than Mastriano spent himself. So I don't want to hear it from Democrats that Doug Mastriano is a threat to democracy. He wouldn't be the nominee if you hadn't paid for him. You did this. Lou Barletta, who was a very conservative candidate, agreed with most of Trump's policies, wasn't necessarily going there on the election. Probably wins without the outside spending on behalf of Mastriano. That's not what happened. Democrats got the candidate they wanted and then claimed that this candidate is an existential threat to democracy. That dog won't hunt. Colorado. Democrats tried to prop up election denier Ron Hanks and election skeptic Greg Lopez in the Senate and gubernatorial primaries. Now, Republicans didn't bite in that particular instance. They nominated the other candidates. But Democrats spent significant amounts of money propping up those two candidates. Yet they're claiming that people who believe what these candidates believe are a threat to democracy. I don't believe them. You're putting your money where your mouth is not. Maryland, Democrats propped up Dan Cox. Illinois, Democrats propped up Darren Bailey. Candidates that were considered more unelectable. I don't know if Bailey's been into the election stuff quite as much as, as all the others, but I know the Democrats propped them up. Across the country, if you are looking at a candidate who is obsessed with and focused on 2020, 2020 and the 2020 election and how it was stolen and they're running on that platform, there's a pretty good chance outside spending from Democratic aligned groups is, prop, is propping them up. I'm hard pressed to think of an example where we know this is not the case. So what does that tell you? It tells you that whatever they may claim, they're not acting as though they believe it. Now the justifications are interesting. Okay. One justification they make is, well, all Republicans really believe this, so all Republicans are a threat to democracy. There's a couple problems with that. First of all, it's the, the threat to our democracy is when you decide that everybody in one party, regardless of what they think about you know, overthrowing you know, democracy and launching a coup or an insurrection, if you just say, well, they're all a threat to democracy because you know reasons, that's kind of a threat to democracy. You're, you're going into undemocratic territory by trying to outlaw and criminalize your opposition, which is, which is essentially a direction that, that Democrats are leaning with this, which makes them, by the way, a threat to democracy as well. Second of all, all of the people whose testimony Democrats rely on for what Trump did and what, they, what they're claiming for that day are Republicans. And not just Republicans, but Republicans who worked in the Trump administration. Bill Barr, 
Republican. Pat Cipollone, Trump's general counsel. Presume he's a Republican. Cassidy Hutchinson, Republican operative. Aide to Chief of Staff Mark Meadows. So if you're going to say all rank-and-file Republicans generally agree with this, then why do you trust their testimony in the first place? Again, that dog won't hunt. The other argument people make is, well, you know, we've, everybody's done this before, right? Todd Akin in 2012, Democrats propped up Todd Akin, who was seen as, as a more beatable candidate for Claire McCaskill in 2012. McCaskill boasted about doing so in 2012. In 2008, there was, um, you know, Rush Limbaugh launched what he called Operation Chaos, where he encouraged conservatives to go vote for Hillary in primaries to prolong the Democratic primary as long as possible. Here's the difference. Operation Chaos, the goal wasn't, we're going to prop up one candidate because we think that candidate's easier to beat. I don't think that anybody thought either Hillary Clinton or Barack Obama was going to destroy the American you know, constitutional order in 2008. That they were going to launch some sort of insurrectionary violence. Nobody thought Todd Akin was going to try to launch a coup in 2012. They thought he was a kook. They thought he was too conservative to win. But they didn't think he was an existential threat. And they weren't claiming he was an existential threat. They were claiming he was too far right. And the voters in Missouri at the time agreed with him. I think Todd Akin actually could win in 2022, but that's a whole different issue. And obviously he can't. Unfortunately, he's passed away. The point being, there's a difference, okay? There's a difference between screwing around in your opponent's primary because you think you can get a more beatable candidate who is within normal, acceptable parameters, right? You're not saying this person is an existential threat. You're just saying they're easier to beat because you think they're a little kooky. But if they get elected, it's not like it's going to be the end of democracy. Right? You don't believe that. You're not claiming that. You're not making that part of your pitch. The difference is Democrats are making that part of their pitch here. They are claiming these candidates were part of an insurrectionary violence, a coup against the good functioning of our constitutional order. That's the argument they're trying to make about January 6th. And then they are propping up candidates who were obsessed with that and who are, in the case of Mastriano, saying, well, we are going to, to make sure that Republicans win in 2024, right? It's a wave year. These candidates could win. Dan Cox is not going to win in Maryland. But you went from having sort of a lean Democratic to a likely Democratic race. So, I mean, Kelly Schultz could have won, but the probability was not super high, right? So you're, you're getting yourself that extra margin, slight extra margin, by boosting somebody that you claim is part of a part of a conspiracy. Mastriano could win. Carrie Lake, if she's the nominee in Arizona, could win. I think she's less likely to win than, than her opponent, uh, Karen Taylor Robson. Bailey's probably not going to win in Illinois. But you can see how this is going to come back, and it's going to come back to bite Democrats. If even one of these candidates wins, and they won the primary, due to outside Democratic spending. You gotta kinda wonder, because I, I think your average Democrat does believe that January 6th was an existential threat to democracy, and probably doesn't believe necessarily that every Republican is on board with this, and recognizes that there are differences within the Republican side, just like there are differences within the Democratic side. And if they find out that their political consultant class has been propping up the crazies in the opposite party, how's that going to go? How much trust do you then have in your own leadership? If you're a progressive voter, you genuinely believe this stuff, 
And then you find out that actually it seems like your leadership is only pretending that they believe this. I can tell you how that turns out. Because we saw it on the Republican side. When it became clear to the rank and file in the Republican Party that particularly on social and cultural issues, the Republican consultant class really didn't like them, despised them, disrespected them, and was only pandering to them but never planned on doing anything. That's how you got Trump. Democrats, this crap is how you get AOC or somebody of her ilk as your nominee. Because they don't trust your, because the base, the people who believe this, who believe this is an existential threat, aren't going to trust the Democratic establishment anymore. And they shouldn't. They should not after these shenanigans. And so you're going to get somebody who really does believe it, who really does believe that the entire opposition party is an existential threat, right? And that's how the Democrats go down the same road the Republicans went down in 2016. So if you think that's a bad road as a Democrat, maybe don't push your party in that direction. It does show us something of the, the sort of cynicism with which the political games are played by those who work as political consultants. Because I'll be honest, there's good chunks of the Republican political consultant class that I wouldn't put, uh, put past this by any stretch of the imagination. Right? It, is, it is a disease of those who work in that industry where they never, no, no longer take anything seriously. And that's dangerous, and particularly it's dangerous in this environment. Both in terms of the level of polarization and the fact that you're propping up these people and they could win. And this raises another question. And this is, this is a serious question that people who need to think about, especially people who are more on the anti-Trump progressive side of things. You're not going to convict Trump based on January 6th. It's not going to happen. The incitement stuff, very difficult to prove. Dereliction of duty, there's no federal statute. You can't charge him with any state statute because this was all happening in the District of Columbia and the president's not subject to the Uniform Code of Military Justice. Conspiracy to commit election fraud? Good luck proving a conspiracy out of Trump. <laughs> that, there's nothing in this testimony that has, has made me more convinced that Trump is capable of crafting and executing a master plan to do anything. Right? He's very impulsive, erratic. You get the impression he's a little bit narcissistic from this. I don't think that's a, a huge surprise that he, he cares about himself first and foremost. Even, even many of his supporters, I think, would acknowledge that, you know, at least in private, if you're honest with yourself looking in the mirror. But capable of executing a masterminded conspiracy slash plan to overthrow the guy? No. No, that's not Trump. Good luck proving it in court. So you're not going to get him indicted. You're not probably going to get a third crack at impeachment. So what are you accomplishing here? Well, you're getting it on the record. Okay, good. Needs to happen. But you're producing this. Who's your audience? It's not Republican primary voters. Because if it's Republican primary voters, then you would spend a lot more time making a case as to how Trump betrayed conservative and constitutional principles. Right? All of your witnesses would be Republican. and All of the cross-examination of them would be done by Republicans. If, you were, if your primary audience for this was Republican primary voters, you would have accepted McCarthy's nominees, even if Jordan and Banks were going to present the Trumpist case, because present the facts and then let them present the best counterargument for Trump they possibly can, how persuasive is that actually going to be? So who's the audience? Based on the behavior of the Democratic 
political industrial consultant complex. I think the audience is an audience of one, and that is Donald Trump. And I have a nasty suspicion that what's actually going on here is that Democrats are trying to goad him into running for president in 2024 because they think they can beat him. That theory fits the facts of what they have been doing in 2022, claiming that January 6th is an existential threat to democracy and then using tangible financial resources to support candidates that are supportive of what happened on January 6th because you think they will be easier to beat in a general election. Part of me wonders if Democrats aren't hoping that they can goad Trump into actually running in 2024 because they think he'll be the easiest person for them to beat with Joe Biden or whoever comes out of their vastly depleted bench to run for president in 2024. My response to that would be, be careful what you wish for because there's no guarantee that Trump couldn't win again. He won in 2016 after all. I think he's less likely to win in 2024. But how often can you play that game before people stop believing you? I think it would actually be not as good for the country, but it might be good for the Democratic Party if somebody like Mastriano wins in 2022. Because hopefully that will prove to some of the bright young things who work in these consulting jobs that actually being too clever by half can sometimes blow up in your face. And that lesson needs to be learned. So it might be good in the long run for somebody like Mastriano to win. Not so sure it'd be great for Pennsylvania. Could cause some problems. But one of these races, I suspect at least one of them, and my, my money right now would be on Pennsylvania, is gonna blow up in Democrats' faces and they're going to get elected somebody who they think is a threat to democracy and we'll be able to point to them and say, you did that. But the second comment that I have is for Republican primary voters. Don't take the bait. Don't take the bait. If you know your opponent wants you to do something, don't do that thing. And we know based on the way the Democrats are spending their money that they want all of these MAGA type voters nominated. So if you think you're doing this out of loyalty to President Trump or owning the libs, you're not. You're doing exactly what they want. The best way to own the libs is to nominate electable candidates who will curb stomp their opponents in 2020, not unelectable MAGA candidates who will either lose or barely squeak by, right? And not everybody who is pro-Trump is getting this type of support from the Democrats. It's the people that are the most extreme on the January 6th stuff. You can support a lot of what the Trump administration did and still get elected even in swing districts or blue states or blue districts, right? But if you see clear evidence that the Democrats are supporting one of the Republicans in a primary race, don't vote for them if you're a Republican. This seems like elementary common sense, but it needs to be said. If your opponent is telegraphing, I want you to do this, don't do that. And if Democrats are telegraphing, we want Donald Trump to be the nominee in 2024, which I think they may be, maybe don't do that. At least strongly consider not doing that. All right, that's going to be a wrap for this episode. Please remember you can rate and subscribe on your favorite podcast provider. You can find us on American One. That's American One your hot new name in conservative podcast streaming. Check them out on their website or on the App Store, and you can find us on all of the podcast providers mentioned at the beginning of this episode. Thank you once again for watching and for listening. And for Blind Politics, this is Dr. Nolte signing off.